Veteran astronaut Nicole Stott talks art and fields questions from kids. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. During her time at NASA, astronaut Nicole Stott spent more than 100 days in space, on the Space Shuttle and International Space Station, where she painted views from orbit using watercolors. She's now bringing what she learned from orbit about the inspiration of art to young people here on Earth. Last week, she hosted a workshop here in Orlando, where young people painted fabric patches for a future spacesuit. We'll speak with Stott about art, inspiration, and the makings of a new art-inspired spacesuit. Plus, we'll hear her field questions from kids at our evening event Friday at the Orlando Science Center. Stott, art, and burning space questions. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? Nicole Stott, veteran NASA astronaut and co-founder of the Space for Art Foundation, led a STEAM-inspired workshop Friday in the Orlando Science Center's Neighborhood Science Space at Grand Avenue Neighborhood Center. The young people, called Artonauts, painted fabric swatches for use in a future spacesuit and created postcards that will be sent to the edge of space on Blue Origin's New Shepard rocket and returned to their creators, complete with a flown-in-space stamp to commemorate their out-of-this-world art. Later that night at the Orlando Science Center, Stott and I sat down for a conversation in front of a live audience to talk about the program. Here's part of that conversation. Nicole, let's start with um, the painting that started it all. Oh, <laughs> and, and that first conversation we had about painting in space. How did this get to the International Space Station with you? Yeah, you know, I, I, when I think back on it, I'm like, I never would have thought to do it on my own, right? Even though since the beginning of humans in space, there's been art involved, there's been music, there's been poetry. And I, you know, we, I think we have this desire to bring our humanity with us wherever we go. But I would not have thought of it on my own. But a dear friend of mine, Mary Jane Anderson, who was also a person within the astronaut office, uh, part of the flight crew equipment group, who helped us pack the stuff we were going to take to space. And as we were getting all the, you know, the things that I, I have to take with me that they they organize, and some of the stuff that I was wanting to take too, you know, you know, I brought my son's little stuffed animal with me, and you know, some things from family and friends to have uh, on board. But I wasn't really thinking about it this way. And she reminded me, she's like, you know, Nicole, you're going to be living there for several months. You should think about what you'd like to bring with you, something you do down here on Earth that you could do in space. And long story short, I decided to bring a little watercolor kit. And I think it was probably the single best decision I made when it came to how I was going to incorporate what I enjoy down here on Earth um, with me in space. Let's talk about the physics of it, because it seems like it would not be (laughs) easy you are in this microgravity environment, you're floating around. Did the paint stick around with you? (laughs) It did. You had to be a little bit careful with it. So every night I'd, you know, pull the equipment out and paint a little bit of this picture that I took of this extraordinary place on Earth called Los Rocas. It's this little chain of islands on the northern coast of Venezuela. And I remember when I looked out the window and saw it, I was like, oh my gosh, it looks like somebody had reached down with a big paintbrush and painted a wave on Mm -hmm. the ocean. And so... That, I knew, was going to be the picture I'd use as my reference for what I painted. And I think that that's interesting about it is that I could have used the experience of painting in space to just describe what it was like to be in that environment in general, where everything is different, 
in one way or another. It's not necessarily more difficult, it's just different. And so to paint with watercolors, you know, I wasn't gonna dip my brush into a cup of water because we don't have cups of water, <laughs> right? So I had to have one of my drink bags um, filled up with water. It's got a little straw on the end and I would carefully squirt out a floating ball of water and dip my brush into that, you know? And I'm like, and I remember the first time I did that, I was like, oh my gosh, this is so weird. You know, where you kind of just stare at something and awe of it, like this is the strangest thing I've ever seen because you would take the tip of the brush up to this little floating ball of water and before the brush even physically touched the ball of water, it was like, I don't know, there was like this magical zone where when the tip got close to the water, it was like all of a sudden the water just wanted to move onto the end of the brush. It was the weirdest thing. And I don't know if it's surface tension or electrical charge of things or what, but I'm sure there's something super science-y about why it does that. <laughs> I'm, but, don't look at me for the answer. But I just remember looking uh. at it like, wow, that's so cool, you know? And then down here, you dip your brush into water and it kind of becomes part of the brush. You know, it's like a wet brush. Up there, it was, it was like the bristles were just there to hold this floating ball of water. And then, you know, moving it down to the paints and having to be very careful so you're not flinging water all over the place because they get upset with you if you <laughs> do that. And, um, and taking it down to the paint and having the paint do the same thing. Like before that little ball of water even physically touched the paint, it's like it wanted to move over there. Mm -hmm. And then mushing it around and pulling this colored ball of water off and... I mean, it was whole, this whole new process and not really painting with the brush because if I touched the tip of the brush to the paper, that whole blob of colored water would just go into the paper. And so I had to develop a way of like just kind of dragging the ball of water at a little bit of a distance from the paper along it to be able to paint. So it took a while, little while to get it. But then once you do, it, it's just like your brain has figured it out. And it was like everything in space, the way we float when we're up there. At first, it seems like it should be so cumbersome, like you should have to grab on and pull hard and really force yourself into position. But it's instead, it's just this really graceful, almost ballet of, of movement. And then your brain and your body just gets it and it becomes like mm -hmm. a normal thing. I, I would not be as graceful. <laughs> no, you would. Everybody is eventually. Everybody is eventually. But that, that whole experience of painting, I mean, I really, I, I think of it as one of the personal highlights mm -hmm. of the mission. And to be able to bring something like that, like Mary Jane suggested, mm -hmm. um, and experience it in this place that was very unique mm -hmm. and special. You said you were you were painting a picture you saw. Yeah. Um, why didn't you just look out the window? There's a beautiful view yeah. right out there. <laughs> <laughs> it is gorgeous, but at five miles a second, um, ah. you probably won't get the brush to the paper you, you uh, before, <laughs> uh, you know, the thing is gone in the window. Now you could float in front of the window and, you know, have that mm -hmm. as kind of this gorgeous backdrop. At least for me, I had to print yeah, it out. Not a speed painter. Yeah. I still, I can't, I can't get over the fact that it, it was a completely different way that you had to, had to paint. Did, did you find that, that you had a, a greater connection to, to the medium that, that, you were using to create art by by understanding it at, at, at a different level like like you did. Yeah, I think so because it just was so different. Mm -hmm. You know, and you had to really pay attention to yeah. what you were doing. And um, whereas, you know, painting down here, I do try to pay attention to not being, you know, too messy and all of that kind of thing. But it's just kind of already programmed into you, like, oh, I dip my brush in water, I get the paint this much, and I, you know, mm -hmm. brush on the paper. Whereas up there the whole entire time it was 
it was just different. And um, mm -hmm. even though you kind of get it, it was it was different enough that you had to always be paying attention to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it all starts with inspiration. That is something that you try to ignite this afternoon. Um, tell us a bit about what we did. Oh my gosh, that was afternoon. so much fun. So really thankful to be invited to participate with these kids over at the center. It was um, a place where you can tell that inspiration is going on all the time. I mean, just the color of the place and the mm -hmm. work that's up on the walls already and the people that are, are leading the sessions there, really excited about what they're engaging the kids in um, in this place. And so we were really thankful to be able to bring the, um, the space art uh, connection to them as well. Um, and you've heard me say it many times, Brendan, I'm a, I'm a fan of kids using their whole brain, you know, um, developing all of these talents that they have and applying them to solving the greatest challenges we have here on earth and so we did a little space art today we um, painted uh, I don't know if you saw the black fabric um, each of those squares that the kids got to paint will become part of an art spacesuit that um, that will be put together before the end of this year I hope fingers crossed and they also got to participate in a program called postcards to space which uh, is sponsored by uh, Club for the Future, which is an education group that's part of Blue Origin. And they collect this artwork from the kids, and then they pack it up, and they fly it on one of their suborbital flights. And then when those cards get back to Earth, they get stamped, flown in space, and returned to the kids. So really excited about that happening. Um, hopefully they won't have graduated by high, from high school by the time they get it back. But um, Come on, Jeff. Let's get that thing going, right? <laughs> but they promised to do it, which, yeah. is, which is really, really cool. And I've seen that happen before. And it's, it's amazing to see how something that seems so simple, you know, this little piece of whatever the kids decided to um, create today, um, will come back to them stamped, flown in space. And I don't know, I, th I think it ignites that kind of yeah. thought about what might be possible that mm -hmm. they might not have considered before. I'm going to go back to, to the fabric. This fabric is going to be <laughs> sewn into a spacesuit. You might have yeah. seen it uh, in the, the video in, in, the, uh, in the lobby. But that can't, it, it's so hard to imagine that <laughs> until you see it. That, and these are, it's being sewn together by which company? So we've been very fortunate. Um, we've done several of these art spacesuits already, and the spacesuit company, I will say the spacesuit <laughs> company, ILC Dover, uh, they made the suit I did my spacewalk in. They made the suits that all of the astronauts on the space station are doing their spacewalks in today, um, or to this date, and, um, and they also made all the spacesuits that walked on the moon. Um, but this is a company that has volunteered their time with us since the very beginning to quilt each these individual pieces of kids art into these art spacesuits. And we started out, um, oh my gosh, that was back probably right, right after we had met. It was like yeah. 2016, yeah. 2017 timeframe, uh, working with kids in um, pediatric cancer centers, refugee centers, orphanages around the world. And then during the plague, thanks to <laughs> a suggestion from my husband, we reached out to kids everywhere. And because every child was going through some form of isolation that they'd never experienced before and considering their health in a way that they never had before. And so this whole idea of space art and healing, space art and wellness, you know, we felt like we needed to invite somebody, you know, kids from across the planetary home. And so we were able to reach and include artwork for at least one child in every country on wow. the planet in our, our last suit called Beyond. 
And that one we had to print. We couldn't get the original artwork during that time frame. So we just got the electronic files and printed it to the fabric. And then again, the ILC Dover folks sewed it mm -hmm. all together. And it's really cool because I think the, the theme for that one was this idea of um, planetary stewardship, like you were talking mm -hmm. about, this connection between personal and planetary health. And Beyond became the ambassador for Spaceship Earth with all these kids. It's very mm -hmm. cool. Yeah, I just think it's absolutely amazing that the company that designed the lunar spacesuits <laughs> yeah. and your spacesuit is going to take this fabric with this paint on it and, and turn it into something so cool. Um, you know, your, your foundation, it, it, it aims to bring community and healing. Tell me a bit about what you see. What, what is a through line at all of these different workshops that you do with these, with these kids? What, what's something that every single one of them takes away from... from this opportunity? Well, I mean, what I hope they take away and what I, I see, what I see always is this, and I think it's what space does no matter what. You know, when you go out and talk to kids about space exploration and the, um, the fact that everything we're doing in space is ultimately about improving life on Earth and how, oh my gosh, we live on a planet and they can all already, cons you know, we're all in space, right? Mm -hmm. And understanding that connection to our planet as our spaceship, all of those kinds of things that kind of go along with it. But I think the inspiration of space is really, it allows, and I would say not just kids, it allows all of us to consider our future in a very mm -hmm. positive way. And, and I see that in the kids when they're, um, when they're working on these projects. They're thinking about something beyond what's going on in that room, what might be going on at home or school or wherever, and they're, they're considering something beyond that. Mm -hmm. and, um, and that's especially compelling when you're in a pediatric cancer center somewhere with, with kids. And man, I mean, the beyond their year's wisdom that I've heard come out of some of these kids is just... I mean, it's, it's mind-boggling. My greatest memory is working with this one young girl. Um, it was in, during one of our very first painting sessions at MD Anderson in mm -hmm. Houston. And she just started, she's painting. She had come in really tired from a treatment or something. And, but next thing you know, she's sitting up straighter. And she's painting. And she's probably seven years old. And she's talking to me about how what she was going through in the hospital must be a lot like what I go through when I'm an astronaut in space. How in the world can this young child who's going through what you hope is the worst thing she ever, ever has to deal with in her entire life is comparing it to something I dreamed mm -hmm. about doing? And then she just went on. She's painting. She's just wow. talking. Yeah, you know, can't just see your family and friends the same way. Can't go outside anytime you want. You're eating all different kinds of food. They're doing all kinds of tests on you. Your body's changing. I think you have radiation. All this stuff that was just like, you are right. Wow. <laughs> you are right. Wow. So we painted and she, you know, and she's pointing up at the sky and, you know, I don't know if she ever had considered being an astronaut or anything, but just that conversation about space and her being able to create and think about what astronauts do, I think it had her thinking about her own future beyond what she was dealing with in that hospital. Mm -hmm. Still to come, Nicole Stott takes questions about her time in space from the young people in the audience. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? You're listening to Are We There Yet? I'm Brendan Byrne. 
After our workshop on Friday, Nicole Stott sat down with me at the Orlando Science Center to share her experience in space with our audience. At the end of the program, she fielded questions from the curious kids in the audience. Here's a selection of our astronaut Q&A. Well, let's ask our first question from you. What's your name? What was the most prettiest part you saw in space? What was the most prettiest part I saw in space? Yeah. Uh, Earth. Earth is... It's stunning. It glows. It's all those colors we know Earth to be, just like crystal clear against the blackest black you know, you've ever seen. And so pretty much any place on Earth is gorgeous. How long do you usually take on a spacewalk? How long do you usually take on a spacewalk? Um, they normally, you know, a normal spacewalk where you're going to go out and do a number of different planned tasks, it's usually six to seven hours. But we've had spacewalks that were like two hours because they just had to fix one thing. It was like, you know, something that had broken. They had to get out there and do it. And then I think, I can't remember the longest one, I think was not nine. It was like maybe little, maybe s- eight-ish. Yeah, I don't, yeah, a little, yeah. Little, little less than nine hours. Yeah. yeah. Did you ever feel weird when you came back to Earth? I feel weird all the time. <laughs> so... Um, yeah, I did feel weird when I came. I mean, you, you really, you, it's so cool how our brains and our bodies adapt to the different environments that we're in. And so you get to space and your brain and your body figures out how to move and float in three dimensions. It also kind of on the downside figures out, man, I don't need bo- bones or muscles anymore to, to survive here. So they don't, your brain and your body doesn't waste really any energy maintaining those. So we have to exercise like two hours hours a day to maintain our our bone and our muscle mass and stuff and to stay healthy so that when we come back to earth and gravity which is holding us here on the planet in our seats and you know we are working hard let me just tell you against this gravity thing and so you feel really super heavy like to the point I remember thinking oh my gosh I have to think about standing up straight and holding my head up has pets ever been to space have pets Pets ever been to space? Sadly, no. There, um, we had some mice on board that I brought up and then brought home, um, and I got to take care of them um, while they were in space. There's been spiders on the space station that they they had like two spiders that they had in these. I know, I know, nope. And um, because they were interested in how spiders make webs, and because things behave so differently in space, they're thinking, man, if we can look at the way spiders make webs, maybe we can make webs in that way and use them as structures, you know, things to build with. And there's there's fish. The Japanese have a, a fish tank on the, the space station. And it's really cool because we just think about fish in a tank here floating around. You got the little bubbler going in there to help circulate the air in the, the tank. And that works totally different in microgravity. So if you were to just stick that little bubbler in the tank, all it would do is make like one big floating bubble inside of the, the water. So it wouldn't be helping the fish and, you know, oxygenating them. And so they had to come up with a whole new way to get air circulating through uh, an aquarium so that the floaty fish could survive there. Huh. What's your question? <laughs> um, what have you eaten and for lunch in space. What have I eaten for lunch in space? A lot of different things. I mean, one of the things that's really cool about the International Space Station is that it's international. So we have food from all of our different partner countries. And um, my very favorite food for, for um, I'll answer dinner first, for dinner was like the Japanese curries, really good. And for lunch, there was this um, vegetable noodle soup that was really super good. But then there was like macaroni and cheese and... Mm. 
asparagus, and I don't know, there was this like cheesy spinach thing. They were all, it was all really good food. It was just a lot like camping food though. You ate it out of a bag that you either added water to or just warmed up, and the only utensil you really needed was a long-handled spoon, but it was good. And then we would do silly food stuff too. You know, float balls of water and put M&Ms or gummy bears in there and suck it all up at one time and <laughs> float, float things to each other. It was kind of neat, you know, as, as the, the silliness, we talked about it in today's session with the kids was, you know, goofy is okay. You, you should have fun in, in these places too. And so. What's a day in the life like on the ISS? Uh, a day in the life on the ISS, one of the things I thought was really great about it, and it still continues to the, today, is that every day was a little bit different. But every day you knew you would have a mix of science. I mean, our prime role up there, our prime mission is, it's like a big laboratory, is to do the science of all these different scientists down on the ground. So, you know, every day there was over 100 different research activities going on. And the crew, the astronauts, are either part, we're like the guinea pig, you know, drawing our own blood, doing, you know, whatever it might be, or we're like the hands, eyes, ears of the scientists on the ground for their experiments. So there's always going to be science, there's always going to be maintenance of the space station, so we have to, you know, take care of the toilet and the electrical system and, the, you know, everything on the station. Um, we do outreach events like this, we talk to schools and media um, folks down on Earth, um, there might be a spacewalk or flying the robotic arm. It just something, it's just a different mix every day, which made it really nice to have that variety. Over here. What's the highest amount of G-force you've had on board the ISS? Um, on board the ISS, um, none really. Um, on the space shuttle, the maximum, and I was very fortunate, it was maximum was three Gs, so three times the force of gravity. Um, in training down here on Earth, we would get into the centrifuge, and I think eight Gs was the most I experienced in that. Wow. Yeah, yeah, it was that, that special <laughs> that kind of fun. That not fun at all. But it was, you know, it really wasn't bad, because the way we launch to space, um, it's unlike, like when I would go flying in those T-38 jets, and, or we were doing aerobatic maneuvers in the jets, and you, you can pull that much Gs easily in, you know, doing a loop or roll or something with, um, in those jets. And... When that happens, it goes straight through your head, like through your head, you know, kind of down longitudinally through your body. And that's, that's where you see, like, you know, you're having to fight against it and all of that. That's a lot more difficult to deal with than when we launch on the, on the spacecraft, you're kind of <laughs> laying on your back facing up. So the Gs come through your chest, like through your chest and out, out through your back. And so that's a lot more easy to tolerate than down through your head. But three Gs even, you feel really, you feel like you weigh three times as much as you did before, like three people are sitting on top of you. And um, so you have to think about it a little bit, but it's, it's really not bad. Did you work with um, anything related to aeroponics when you were in space? So aeroponics, like the way we grow plants and that kind of thing. Yeah, we had several different plant experiments. I think they all, except for one, were Japanese plant experiments. And one that I really liked was, um, there was these tiny little Aerodopsis flowers. They looked like miniature baby's breath flowers. And they were growing in these cubes. And it was all, there was no um, dirt. I mean, there was no soil. So you saw all the root structure of it. We did add, uh, you know, liquid nutrients to it. Um, but it was really just the air in that container that was, um, so I don't know if that qualifies completely as aeroponics or not. But it was really neat to work with those. Has anyone ever played chess in space? Absolutely. 
little mag uh, Greg Chamatoff, I know had a like a chess competition going on with the folks in Mission Control. So they would keep a they had the board up on the station and they had the board, you know, down in Mission Control and I think he had like a magnet board or something that he used. How do you go to the bathroom in space? There it How is. do you go to the bathroom in space? There it is. All I right. knew one of you was okay. going to ask it. All right. <laughs> So, yeah. <laughs> A round of applause for asking the brave question. <laughs> so it is different than down here on Earth. I'll, everybody understands the lingo one and two, right? Yeah. Number one, number two. All right, so it's kind of separate activities. Um, uh, we have, on the space station, we have a private um, you know, we call it the waste and hygiene compartment because you can't just call it the potty, you know. <laughs> Although there is a sticker on the back that says like orbital outhouse or something like that. <laughs> but um, yeah, so there's a private place um, and inside there's this big long hose with a yellow funnel on it. And that's for number one. And so you go, if you just have to go number one, you go in, you pull the hose off the wall, you take the cap off the funnel, you turn on a switch and it has like a vacuum, like an airflow inside of it. And then it's all about aim and speed. So, I mean, really, you're just, you're kind of floating. Maybe we have foot restraints you can hold on with, but really it's all about aim and speed with the funnel, right? And then number two is a lot like camping. So uh, this metal waste container, it's got a lid on top. It's fixed, you know, it's set, almost looks like a toilet sitting, you know, in this compartment. And again, we have a switch that you turn on. It pulls airflow through, um, through the container, and that's really helpful from the standpoint of odor, too. It's less stinky if you got air flowing through it. And again, you got to be very careful about positioning yourself properly over the top of that, um, the hole in the can. And then once, once that can is full, it gets sealed off and um, sealed off really tightly and put into a cargo vehicle that then will burn up in the atmosphere when we get rid of our, our trash. We do that in these cargo vehicles. So I would argue that some of those shooting stars you see <laughs> <coughs> at night might be actually be one of those cargo vehicles with your number two in it. Hi, nice to meet you, I'm Eliza. Have you seen Hi. aliens in space? Have I seen aliens in space? No, but you know what? We joke a lot about how they might just be so small that we can't see them. But I saw things that surprised me, which, you know, seems a little weird at first. So you're wondering what it is you're seeing. Like, I remember floating in front of the window one night and seeing this streak of light go below me and wondering, I was all by myself and wondering what it was. So I floated down to the other end of the space station. I found Mike Barrett. And I'm like, okay, dude, what was that? I just saw this streak of light go below me. And he's like, oh, probably a shooting star, you know, a small piece of debris, something. You know, and I'm like, and I remember floating away thinking, somebody could tell you that you might see something like right. that, right? <laughs> and then going back to the window and wanting to see another one. Because you know how when you look up at night, and have you ever seen a shooting star at night? Oh, I can't wait for you to see one. It's so cool. And so you see it, and then you always see it, and you're like, oh, I didn't make my wish. And so you want to see another one so you can make a wish. So I wanted to see another one. I know that. Yeah. And then I remember looking back and thinking, wow, that's so cool. That's going to do it for this week's show. A very special thanks to United Arts of Central Florida and the Orlando Science Center for partnering with us for this event. And thanks to WMFE's Nicola Bondondolo and Rebecca Fernandez for their help planning. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to this show's podcast feed so you never miss an episode. Subscribe on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We've got more space coverage online. Visit wmfe.org space. 
Are We There Yet is a production of 90.7 WMFE News. Our producer is Marion Summerall. Our intern is Amy Diaz. Editorial guidance from LaToya Dennis and Mac Dula engineered this live taping. Thanks, Mac. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening. <laughs>